Welcome back to the Devin Kershaw Show. I'm Nat Hers from Faster Skier. We know you've been waiting a long time for us to answer your burning questions, but it is finally here, the yearly mailbag episode where we give you those answers. So uh, Devin and I tried to go through almost all of them. We kept it pretty tight and we'll be back in a minute. If you're listening to this podcast, you probably already know that people don't get into cross-country skiing to make the big bucks. Suffice to say, we are not rolling in money here at the Devin Kershaw Show HQ. And unfortunately, we also have not yet made it to the point where Alaska Airlines is breaking down our doors, offering us free flights in exchange for underwriting announcements like this one. So unfortunately, also, we had to give away actual money, real U.S. dollars, hard currency, to buy plane tickets for me to get to the upcoming North American World Cup races. There are going to be other expenses, too, a rental car, a room, and we've got to pay for them. So I'm not going to beat around the bush here. We need some money from you. If you like this show... If you like the stories I've written for Faster Skier over the years and all the other stories that get written by contributors, please consider a voluntary subscription. There is real work involved in this stuff. I produce the podcast every weekend. Devin and I, who both have other jobs, put in the time to research and record, and your donations make a real difference for us and for the website. Visit fasterskier.com slash support to sign up, and thank you. What's happening, dude? Not much, man. Looks, uh, I don't see any water cascading down the side of your house. So, no, disaster averted. Disaster averted, thanks to the good plumbers of the Oslo, the city of Oslo. What, so, uh, what, what is it good? I'm on, I'm on the fifth floor, so really, it doesn't really matter. But, like, from all my neighbors, they're very thankful that there's no cascading waterfall. What does a good like job from a city of Oslo plumber like set you back in Scandinavia? Is it like fifteen thousand dollars or something? At least, like probably an hour. I actually haven't got the I haven't um, I haven't got the bill yet, but I <clears throat> so it's in the mail. Um. Well, first of all, can can you just um describe what you were just doing? Because it's you, you got like a do you have like an adventure ski through the woods back from the hospital to your place you know what you know what this this will warm the hearts of our dozens of listeners i do work at the hospital for money very little money but for money i have a part-time job in the hospital but not in oslo in lillehammer and in oslo this winter i have started a little bit of a part-time job doing some technique courses for people so it's actually an old world junior champion. Her name is uh, Siri Halla. She won world juniors like back in the day. She's older than my wife. So you have to go back in the catalog to, that's a deep cut. If you know those stats, then you are a true Nordic ski fan. Anyway, she has, um, she has a business that runs like training and uh, for businesses, evenings and like trainings for businesses and, technique and then multiple different sports so i'm helping her out a little bit uh with some technique courses so 
Got to pay I, off those plumbing bills, dude. Yeah, those plumbing bills don't pay themselves. The problem is nothing against City and, and the Learn to Ski family. They're great. Uh, but um, it's not paying the bills. Let's put it that way. Hmm. Not it, a lucrative it, endeavor. It's, it's fun, but it's not a lucrative. None of these gigs are lucrative, Nat. I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to lie to you. But, you know, I, I guess what my life, wife likes to say when I start complaining, she's like, you know what? Helping out with something is a lot better than me supporting you 100% with everything as you as you try and learn uh, medicine as a 41-year-old. <laughs> so can I, can I, I, ask, I count my blessings. I do. I do. Can I ask a question, which, you know, you can, you can feel free to duck this, but uh, actually might be an interesting question as we've been talking a little bit about... Um, about sort of the economics of the the sport of cross-country skiing, which is, you know, your wife was among probably the top five most successful female uh, cross-country skiers of her gener of her generation. Oh, oh yeah. Oh, oh my God. Better than, better than that. Better than that. Yeah. I, I, like, I am curious, does that, I mean, does that translate too close to like, you know, retired American professional athlete status where you make like millions of bucks and you can kind of relax or she's basically, you not know, at she, all. Made, she made enough money to not, uh, you know, uh, go bankrupt during her career, but she's still got to work the rest of her life. Like anyone. Oh else. no, for sure. She, she has to work the rest of her life. I think, I think a good way to look at this would be like people have different personalities, right? So, um, when you're winning world cups and you're, winning world championship individual medals and that sort of thing like Kristen my wife did this, this course, Kristen, Kristen Stormersteyer uh Kristen know, Stormer yeah would Kristen be in the Stormer. hall of fame if such things existed for sure in Norway if it was a hall of fame in Norway that she would be in it for sure um the thing is she was never what she was never really big into which, uh, like no part of her wants to sell herself. She just, she, she's low key. She's very, very down to earth grounded and like absolutely not out there at all. So if you're that kind of person, you're just not going to have the income. I mean, even though now we're living like an influencer life, right? Like you got to just keep just polluting, like spray, 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 just pollute all social media channels with, with your message all, at all times. That's what companies want to have happen. Luckily, Kristen wasn't a part of that generation so much. I guess she straddled it a little bit, but that was never something that she was super comfortable with myself either um, at all. I'm still not at all comfortable with it, but um, so, and that's fine. You can live your life like that, but then you're not going to be making, you're not going to be raking in the, the cash. And of course, Terezio Hug is or Mark Mar Bugen's the best cross country skier that ever lived, male or female. So you can't really compare to that, right? Or you can't compare it to Terezio Hug, who's like a model. Your, your, your wife was like the Scotty Pippen and the Michael Jordan. Kind of. Yeah, yeah, kind of. Yeah, ex exactly. Exactly. So, I, I mean, but, but, um, for sure, you do well. I mean, like, just, just instead of beating around the bush and stuff, because the reality is to win a World Cup is, well, at, in her era, because it it didn't pay to top 20 when Kristen was racing. So it was 15,000 Swiss francs for an individual World Cup win. So you can start extrapolating that. So that's 15,000 American for Americans that are listening and maybe about like 18,000 or 19,000 Canadian um, for World Cup win. So when you just start extrapolating results, and so it was, it'd be like 15,000 Swiss francs for the win, 10,000 Swiss francs for second and 5,000 Swiss francs for third. 
And that that's before you have any uh, victory schedules from your poles, boots, bindings, skis, whatever, glasses, that sort of thing, gloves, uh, that sort of thing. So if you're skiing well, no matter where you are in the world, no matter what passport you have, you're making good money. You're making incredibly good money if you're one of the absolute best in any given season. But if you want to make a ton of money for a cross-country skier, this is all with the asterisks of for a cross-country skier, then you're going to have to be out there. I mean, you're going to have to be out there like Klebo's out there. You're going to have to be out there like Jesse Diggins is out there. I mean, like Jesse Diggins is all over social media and all over um, supporting her suppliers and her sponsors, right? And you see that everywhere if you're a follow cross-country skiing. So, I mean, but she's getting paid for that. She is, but that's a decision you have to make. And there's by no means a requirement to put yourself out there. But, yeah, you know... You get paid for what you do. So it's uh, different strokes for different folks, as they say in Sudbury, Ontario. So on, on that note, um, we, uh, we've got a clock ticking a little bit here because I've got to get to uh, teeth cleaning. That, uh, the... bad I have to actually be at the hospital to do what I'm not getting paid for tomorrow yeah. early. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so, um, but, but, uh, we'll, we've got some other stuff that we'll revisit toward the end here, but, uh, the, the purpose of us being here today uh, is a mailbag episode, which we, you know, it's it's sort of an annual, turning into an annual affair. And um, I've got a spreadsheet with like 20 questions and we'll actually go through them sort of first come first served. And Devin, uh, I'm just, I'm going to rule with an iron fist here. I'm going to be a disciplinarian. And um, in, in the, in the words of um, one of these uh, mailbag questioners that I, I really enjoyed. Um, yeah, there's some classics. It, 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 they said, it's true that Devin doesn't know when to shut up, but his voice is like a crowd of angels all climaxing at once. So I'll give it a pass. Um, so on that note, uh, I'm just going to be trying to rigidly enforce uh, concision in, in these answers because I think we've got about 23 questions to get through in an hour. So I'm just going to, you know, we'll try to keep it light and breezy uh, in the immortal words of uh, Jake Peralta of... Brooklyn Nine-Nine, if anyone ever watched that show. So let's let's get into it here. We're going to start with Jen in Minnesota with her question. Um, what are the most fan-friendly courses out there besides Holman Cullen and what makes them good for fans, Devin? Oh, this is, I really love this question. And it's not going to come as a whole lot of surprise. So the thing is with what's the most fan-friendly course um, on the World Cup, some of these venues that are incredibly fan friendly don't come around on the world cup every single year. Like for example, La Clusa in France is an amazingly fan friendly course. You can see pretty much the whole course. It is packed with fans. There's like chainsaws without chains on. It's loud. It's a party. There's raclette everywhere. It's a beautiful setting. Uh, but, but La Clusa is not on the calendar every single year. Same with Quebec city. Quebec City is an incredibly fan-friendly course when they do it on the Plains of Abraham. Uh, same thing, open, you can see a lot of the course. It's urban. There's a lot of different places to stay. When Alex was racing, especially, there was a ton of fans. You know that Minneapolis is going to be this because of, in large part because of Jesse Diggins and also like a more urban setting. But that said, coming back to the World Cup and, and like some staples on the World Cup that you're guaranteed to have fun, Falun. Falun is a classic venue that has been on the World Cup 
seen since the beginning of time, a little bit like Sweden. Sweden. In Sweden. That's in Sweden. Yeah. So that's like a smaller or medium sized city in Sweden. Um, and it's not an urban event, but you're, you can easily walk from the city of Falun to the race course in about like a kilometer and a half. A lot of people do. And it has something for everybody. If you're young and you want to really party hard, you have that. If you're a family and want to enjoy the race and, and cheer in a like safe environment for kids and stuff and family, you have that too. So Falun is definitely one that comes to mind. Davos, Switzerland, actually the sprint. I don't know if anyone listening to this podcast watched the night sprint at the Tour de Ski this year, but that was a great example of what the what the kind of atmosphere can be in in the sprint, especially. I would in the distance race for Davos, it's it's actually not that great a turnout and not that great a vibe. But um, but the sprint in Davos is is a big one. So if I just take a classic venue, I'm most definitely going with uh, Falun and the other mentioned for the more you know not happening all the time, Quebec City or or Lucluza. Central Europe's gonna um, send us some hate mail for that. No, no love for Central Europe. I will just throw in that actually uh, Slovenia, Planica was pretty sweet. Not a lot of yeah. fans, but fun fun place, beautiful venue. Um, well, the Mexico actually can have a lot of fans, which is kind mm-hmm. of like that's off the beaten path one. And then yeah. of course, like some of the Italian venues are are um, can be quite exciting as well. Toblock. But, yeah, Toblock. But, but again, like Toblock just doesn't bring out no, I'm not. Toblak's not getting my nod. No chance. Sorry. They just had good risotto. Okay, so um, next question. Ben Ariens from Anchorage, Alaska. I had a suggestion about making Nordic ski racing less expensive. Limit the number of pairs of skis that one athlete has access to in a season. The way it is now, the poor stay poor, the rich get richer. F1, Formula One car racing, limits the number of engines a team has access to. Shouldn't that be shouldn't be that hard to reduce the skis available for any one skier. Yeah, they still have grinding as a variable that the top teams have more access to. But putting a limit of 50 or even 60 pairs of skis doesn't seem unreasonable. And I will also throw in, we had a similar sort of question from um, Ollie Burris in Craftsbury, Vermont, where he kind of addressed like the development related aspects of that conversation where he said he heard rumors in Scandinavia that they have equipment controls for youth skiing, allowing just one pair of skate and one pair of classic skis for racing up to a certain age. And talk to us about what you think about sort of limitations on equipment, whether we're talking at the youth level or the, or the senior, you know, elite level. For sure. I'll, I'll start with the elite level and I'm really glad that they brought F1 into it. So yeah, of course, like they have limitations also with tires now with the F1 and people that follow F1, you can't change tires mid race, that sort of, unless there's like blowouts and stuff like that. Um, but here's the thing in F1, it is incredibly unfair and Haas, for example, has no chance compared to Red Bull. And uh, the same goes for equipment and technicians and cross country skiing. And it is unfair in a lot of ways, but at the same time, it is, it is a part of the sport. And I file, I feel like this is a really, really tricky one because there's so many variables and interests at play. So it's in Fisher's best interest that Claybo has the best skis because Claybo is an athlete in a market where cross-country skiing is king and they sell a lot of skis, boots, and gear. And it's in their best interest to show a true champion in a market that sells a lot of gear. So they do this with Claybo and he has the pick of the litter. It means that if you're a developing athlete in Canada, for example, and you're skiing on Fisher, like good luck. 
you're not, I mean, you probably have to pay for your skis for a while. They'll be like at reduced price, but it's a, it's a vast difference than Claybo getting 160 pairs of more, like an unlimited amount of skis tested for him a year and then picking the best. So the problem lies a little bit with the suppliers. So you'd have to get the suppliers on board in this or else this is, this is a, this is a, this, this is a, a duck that won't fly. I mean, you have to have the suppliers sign off and I'm just in the current capitalist society we live in. I think that'd be a real struggle. But then the other thing too is like, you know, you heard Eli Brown, people that have listened to our podcast a little bit um, when we tried to ask Eli and press Eli on neutral service, that sort of thing. Yeah, he's, I, that, he's one of the wax technicians for the US ski team. Exactly. And he's been a wax technician for the US ski team for many years. And, and I actually like the idea of neutral service. If you could work this in and try this to make this happen a bit more. I I would rather we lean more towards a neutral service type uh, environment than because that that wax is grinding, that kind of thing. Mm, grinding, I think is also a variable that I think, yeah. And grinding, I think you could also like keep within teams or, or, or brands, but hand structure. So the, the, the patterns that are pressed into the ski base, as well as any waxing, I think it would be a pretty interesting idea to have a neutral service team where you fist, for example, hired 40 technicians and they just travel the circuit like roadies and do all the waxing. But then the teams can still help test the best skis. The, the producers are still offering the ski like Fisher, Atomic, Solomon, Matthews, whatever. Rosinal, they're they're still on tour helping the athletes get the best equipment, but then the actual waxing could be neutralized. I think that'd be an interesting, I think that'd be an interesting um, avenue to explore. It, it'd be hard to do, but it's um, yeah, that's on the World Cup level. And then on the junior side of things, this is interesting because you hear this all the time. I hear this. And I live in Norway, right? Like I hear this from North America. It's like I heard in Norway they like limit this, and if that is a fact, I have not seen that on the ground because. Much like North America, it's an arms race on the junior level, especially in the junior sides of things in, in cross-country skiing. And I think that's a problem. I think they do a great job in Norway of limiting uh, excess equipment and waxing when the children are uh, under 14 years of age. They do. Th then they do a very good job. Uh, the clubs do a good job. And there's like this kind of collective philosophy that come one, come all, and everyone can have fun. But once they're, I would say, once they tip over from 14 to 15, uh, then it just becomes an arms race. And this is a problem. And this is gets discussed a lot in Norway, gets a lot discussed a lot in Sweden as well. And this is not good. And how are we going to limit this and make this better? I think we could have a little strict, more strict rules, maybe from, from the clubs, uh, to limit the limit the arms race that's happening in, on the junior side of things. So I think that that's... And that's not F1, you know what I mean? That's go-karting. And I don't think I don't think it's great that someone shows up with an F3 car on the go-kart track, if if that makes sense. We're gonna have to like bring on an F1 reporter to kind of break down the similarities and differences, but we'll we'll get to that later. So next question from uh Jared from the USA. Um Jared had some questions about equal how we've equalized the distances being skied by the men and women. Uh, this was sort of an interesting question. Obviously, this has increased the amount of time on the course for women and decreased the amount of time for men, especially for the back of the pack skiers for the women. They're out on the course an inordinate amount of time. I will not insert any editorial comments here. Physiologically, by the end of the season, do you think the back of the pack women will have doubled the exertion of the top 10 men? 
If it does bear out, it might be something to give a voice of concern to because there can be real damage done to anybody that exerts themselves beyond their capabilities. We know that the top skiers can handle it, but what do we know about the back of the pack skiers having to work so much harder all race season? Q Q Kershaw. Yeah, well, this is a great this is a great question, and, and you know, like I got some pushback from um, Marty Hall, who is a great supporter of faster skier, and and again, I'm so indebted for the Marty Hall for for Marty Hall uh, helping me get back to Canada for the Hall of Fame induction uh, late last year. But the fact of the matter is, I really fall on the side. Like once you start using physiology, human physiology, as your argument, this is where I really struggle. Because the physiological demands on a male versus a female skier in competitions that let's take a 10K, for example, where um, the male skiers or even like the back of the pack male skiers are competing a 10K in 25-ish minutes. And the back of the pack on the World Cup female skiers maybe are 30 or 32 or something. The, the, The demands physiologically like biochemically and physiologically on the human system with a difference of seven minutes is nothing. This is nothing. There there is absolutely so little difference of the load that you're under. Also, you have to remember that these athletes are all training the top female athletes. I mean, the top, 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 like the Jesse Diggins, the Therese Yohugs of the world, they're training over a thousand hours a year. And guess what? This is going to come as no surprise to any listener. The top male skiers like the Amundsen's right now or the Klebos, they're also training over a thousand hours a year. So while in quote unquote time, minutes spent racing, 100%, I agree with the listener that's saying that they, they, the women in the back of the pack will have raced X amount of minutes more than the worst men for men, for example, but when you extrapolate that over how much the preparation is pretty much the same and how uh, the amount of work and preparation that even the, the skiers that are at the back of the pack are doing, uh, the, the actual race load is nominal. It, 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 this is, this is nothing. So I am all for equal distances and yeah, let's, uh, I'm not too worried that the women at the back of the pack are, are, uh, um, the uteruses are going to fall out. No, no, I, I haven't learned that yet. Halfway through medical school in Norway, that has not come up, no. In the immortal words of former FISC president, Gianfranco Casper. Okay, so next question from Dan Urban. Um, Given the alchemy that is ski selection and preparation, it surprises me that sponsorship deals are structured, at least I'm assuming they are, that athletes are locked into one brand. Obviously, no brand wants to see one of their athletes switch skis and then start crushing it, but that could work in their favor sometimes, too, and we're not talking Nike versus Adidas here. Do you suspect there are any mismatches between some U.S. pros' skiing strengths, weaknesses, and their ski brands? Could you shed light on how these deals work? Like, could the U.S. team... Or uh, could the U.S. team say to Solomon, Rosino, Matthews, hey, we're going to put our athletes on whatever ski we think is best for them on the day, but we're going to make sure you're represented in some fraction of races. Yeah, I mean, that's no ski company in their right mind would sign off on that with their top athletes. So that's the problem. <laughs> that, that's the biggest problem, right? But uh, this has happened before. I mean, like Oysten Pedersen late in his career uh, in the 
in the Oisten Pedersen is the Olympic champion in the team sprint with Petter Nortug in 2010. And then he went to the ski classics um, late in his career, which is the Vassalop at Marshallonga, the, the marathon cup circuit. Um, really, really late in his career, he decided to do a project where he opened himself up to all brands and just picked, he essentially was sponsored by a big, like a giant shop in, in Oslo. And he had this big project where he was just going to race with whatever skis were the best on that day. If they were Solomon, Rosinal, Matsus, Fisher, whatever, uh, those, those, he would race on those because the reality is at, at the very, very, very top, the, the margins are so thin. Like now, thankfully there's very little difference between the absolute, absolute best. So Harold Amundsen, for example, has, is the top Matsus athlete. He can pick from, he has the whole company behind him to find him the best skis in all conditions. Klebo is the same, but for Fisher, um, you know, Jesse Diggins for Solomon. Uh, but as we discussed earlier in earlier questions, like it, 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 that level of support uh, falls pretty quickly. So a developing athlete has none of that support. And for example, in wet conditions, if you were a domestic athlete and it was clister conditions and, and like warm clister conditions, like plus five, plus eight Celsius, dirty. And you could get your hands on Rosinols that, that work for your, work for your weight really well. And especially like the white base Rosinols, for example, like they're amazing clister skis. You're going to have a much better chance finding great clister skis in the warm. If you're a domestic skier that has to go to a shop or, or order them through like Zach Caldwell or like uh, some of those suppliers or um, those kind of things with Rosinol for that condition, for sure. But on the top, top level, <laughs> the the skis are very similar. I mean, of course, we all still discuss. I'm going to keep that to myself. But the, these discussions happen even at the top level. It's like when, you know, you've had a bad day with fish or something and Solomon were really good. Uh, you're just like, well, it was a Solomon day, obviously. Like, Fisher just doesn't have it for this really obscure, narrow condition, and we dork out over it. But as far as the companies, no company in their right mind would sign off on on something that is being discussed, like the whole U.S. ski team having the pick of the litter. And what would happen is that the companies themselves would not give the U.S. ski team the best skis because if there's no guarantee that they're going to use them, maybe I'll give it to the German dude or the Swiss dude or the Norwegians. And that would really affect a national team. So it's an interesting idea. It has been tried out and it's never stuck. So I don't know if that's an economic thing or or, a, or an aspect of the best skis just don't trickle down to people that are trying these uh, tricked out uh, strategies like Oisten did late in his career. I mean, he was not even close to a top level athlete at that point time. So he was not getting the pick of the litter from any of those skis companies. We are uh, moving right along. Devin Kershaw, notoriously uh, for boast, turning, turning over a new leaf here, keeping things keeping things tidy. So we'll go next to Tarje Bakken, uh, who's coming straight out of Norway. And uh, Tarje asks, um, I have a question regarding the term, the a term the Norwegian ski expert on NRK, the Norwegian national broadcaster, Torgir Bjorn, uses on a regular basis. Torgir always talks about how good a skier like Johannes Klebo is, quote, tactisk or technical tactical. Can you guys try to provide a, tech, a definition of what being good at technical tactical actually means? Shoulder shrug emoji. Yeah. Okay. But this is this is also a great question because we are also could be accused of singing the praises of Klebo's tactics and technique. 
when it comes to technique, essentially, like, like anything with technique, it's all about biomechanics and you want the energy to be going in the direction of travel you want it to be going. So that means, for example, if you have your weight directly under you and directly under your kick zone in classic, for example, and every single time you load that cross-country ski, and we all know a cross-country ski is, is, is arched, it's, it's bowed. And there is one spot of a classic ski where you put the kick wax, when you press it down, that's what gives you that purchase, allow you to propel yourself forward. Now, if you're a clay bow and you never, 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 never miss kicking right in the sweet spot of your ski, guess what a consequence of that is? You can go with, like if you take hard wax, for example, instead of having six layers under your ski, now you can go with three layers under your ski. Well, guess what happens to your skis? Now they're way faster because that sticky wax that's slowing down your ski, you're skiing with far less of it under your foot. And you can go with different styles of ski. We're not going to get totally dorked out into like the, the cambers and the, the weights and everything like that. But the, the fact of the matter is, if you're a tactic, if you're a technical master, you're able to use less energy for the same velocity. So what ends up happening, <laughs> you know, like uh, a great Greg LeMond quote, like it doesn't get any easier. You just go faster. That's what happens to a clay bow, but he can increase his velocity and that will increase his effort. But with his technical prowess, that's what's showing. And that's probably what Torge Bjorn is talking about a lot on the technical side. On the tactical side of things, we have sung the praises. I'm just going to pick the easiest, like low hanging fruit is like the lines that he skis on the descents. You know, Jesse Diggins is also a, a, a uh, like a tactical master on this as well when it comes to part of the a tactic is looking for the best snow and the best lines through the corners because the more energy you can take the more velocity you can take out of these corners that that is free seconds those are free seconds and claybo does it better than anyone else and much like michael jordan in basketball at his best much like wayne gretzky in hockey at the peak of his career where people say like, oh, they have eyes in the back of their head and they can see the whole court or Tom Brady at the pinnacle of his career as a quarterback in, in NFL. Some of these athletes are truly transcendent masters and they can read the pack. They can read the course so much better than the rest. And Claybo falls on this in this field. And I think that's probably what Torga Bjorn is talking about. Absolutely. So I hope that helps. Excellent. Yeah. Hope, hope we can help, help Tare in Norway out there. Um, next question from Thomas just, uh, has two questions actually, uh, one that I will ask and answer. Um, I'm wondering if you have any information on what happened to Simone Mussolini. He frequently made it to the podium in classic sprints last year, but hasn't participated in any races this year. Um, what's going on with that guy? Uh, Mussolini, uh, fell and broke his hand and has been, uh, eagerly waiting his return to the world cup uh it took him a little while to recover but he i think is going to be back in uh, oberhof germany this weekend so uh similar we had a question about tira ludness wang uh where is she she has been she got covid has really been suffering it but also will finally be back at the world cup this weekend second question from thomas just uh I, um i'm curious about your views on quote, super long ski sessions. And by quote, super long, I mean sessions lasting over four hours. I saw Ivar Tildheim Anderson, the young Norwegian phenom, uh, doing a seven and a half hour classic ski session the other day. What are your thoughts on such lengthy trips in the middle of the season, Devin Kershaw go? 
Yeah, I think this is an interesting question because, Nat, we've actually discussed this prior. Uh, this was uh, maybe two years ago with Hans Christer Holland. So this is like deep into the catalog because he was posting some like just outrageous skis in Shushin during the season, like nine and a half hour skis, these sort of, which I think is nine and a half hours is a bit silly. We talked about that. So if you want to know our 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 attitudes on that, you can just dig through the catalog and listen to our discussion and tangent talking about that. But as far as like the Americans would call these like OD sessions, like over distance uh, or, or longer level one or like even like sub aerobic sessions. Listen, they're like cycling, cross country skiing is an endurance event and there is definitely a place in in cross country skiing for these longer, longer sessions. And if you're if for professionals, let, let, let's just let's just uh, put an asterisk there and a caveat. Like if you're a professional and you have an absolute control over your heart rate, your lactate, and your you can choose terrain that suits a long ski like that, then by all means, there is a ton of physiological benefits that can happen. One one benefit we can speak to is like, if you do these long sessions, you'll be a bit dehydrated, no matter what, because you, you, you're way out in the mountains, you can't just fill your bottle every hour, can't drink a liter of fluid every hour in these sessions when you're cross-country skiing. So what ends up happening is, even though maybe you fill up your bottle twice or three times or something, uh, that's not enough. Three liters of fluid is not enough for a seven hour session to, to match the output. So what ends up happening is you dehydrate yourself, but then when you finish the session, you overcompensate by drinking a lot, like quite a bit. And you get this like blood volume boost. Well, surprise, surprise, what happens when you get a, like a short-term blood volume boost? Well, yeah, you're going to start producing more red blood cells and that's going to help you with the oxygen extraction, blah, 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 blah. So physiologically, absolutely big believer in long distance. Seven and a half hours, I think is a bit extreme personally, especially in the season. It's a race season. I don't really, that I don't truly uh, understand. I well, feel like and, that. And, and, and I think like particularly, I was going to just follow on and ask like one thing for like 33 year old Hans Christer Holland to do a seven hour session, yeah. but 23 year old Ever Tildheim yeah. Anderson, like the odds I have, to, I'm going to yeah. just posit that the odds that that guy was really within himself and doing, and that that's a smart thing. They are small. Yeah. But yeah, that's small, that that's small. And seven and a half hours is long, but, but again, like if you look through this heart rate file, if he was like, let's say like under 120 beats per minute or 125 beats per minute for that session, like in that sub aerobic or low zone one, um, you will get you will you will get a blood volume expansion from a session like that 100 and if you keep the terrain flats you won't get super loaded in your muscles and you will get the aerobic benefits from that from a session like that i would suggest for professional skiers in the race season and like well, when you have multiple weeks off sure but i mean like like i don't think you really need to do sessions much over six hours to be perfectly honest i i, I believe you don't need to do sessions as a cross-country skier over six hours at any time of the year I think I think it, six is six is a good a, a good uh, high water mark for to get the benefits that you're looking to get out of sessions like that. Four four or five hours also pretty legit. Um, so we will move on to uh, Peter Hoken Thompson of Minneapolis. Um, I just watched the 20k women's pursuit in Davos when Rosie was tucking right behind Kertu Niskanen coming down to the finish. It looked like Rosie pushed against. Kertu's pole to not run over the tails of her skis. Is this something racers do often? It looked like Rosie communicated something just before she did it, so it looked coordinated. 
yeah, this is something that happens. And you actually pretty fun that you notice that on the female side of things, because this is not something that you see all that often on the female side of racing, mostly because they're using all the tracks. Uh, like there's four women, they're going to be in four, like four tracks side by side, not in Davos when the conditions were bad, but in the men, this is a big part of it. I mean, um, especially in a pursuit race or a mass start, when you've broken away and you're a smaller group, you, you want to stay away. And what's the best way to do that? Not, not catch a bunch of wind and change tracks. And it's, it's push on the poles ahead of you. And we're all very, very keen for this. And we like this and it helps everybody. And we go faster. Here's an interesting though. Here's an interesting story. Uh, two stories, actually, we have discussed uh -oh. like Justin Wadsworth was our coach. And this is an interesting one. And I, I, I've been trying to look for this on the Norwegian team because this happens quite a bit. And individual starts, um, if you were one of your teammates is, is better, like having better splits, and they're, you're with Niskanen, let's say, you, you Niskanen catches you, and you're behind Niskanen, and you're taking a ride from Niskanen. But you know that your teammate, uh, Paul Goldberg, is like within seconds of Niskanen. Do you push the poles of Niskanen? I mean, you're coming like 15th, right? Like, no, you don't. You just stand up, you take the wind, and you don't give Niskin in that, like, that three second or two seconds in a 20K. Um, and this does happen. And this has happened to me as a competitor that I would be annoyed because the person, the the Swiss athlete that I'd caught is not pushing my poles, but I'm competing with Dario, and they do not want me to get that little advantage with Dario. That doesn't happen in the mass starts or pursuits because then you know exactly where you are in the field. But in the individual starts, it's actually kind of a subtle thing that you can watch for uh, when you're watching World Cup ski racing and seeing like, are people working together on the downhills or not? And if they're not, the chances are one of their teammates is in a real dogfight with an, with uh, the nation that's involved in that. So would, that would, your coach, would your coach actually like yell at you on the course to be like, don't push on you know whatever Norwegian no no then it wouldn't yell but it would, it would it would come it would come up and it came up in team meetings absolutely and then Arnold Munson the the uh legendary male sprint coach for Norway coached us as well in um the 2009 season Canada he also coached Sweden he's he's probably the most winningest uh he's kind of the Bill Belichick of uh he's not as surly I can be so you can be surly too but anyway Arnold Munson, uh, he had a whole bunch of stupid tricks that he would like to teach it, like just like talk shit. And I have, I have no confirmation that they've done this before, but apparently like a dirty trick it, that uh, has it happened or not, I'm not sure. But this is a discussion from he raced in the 80s was like put a thin, thin layer of clister, just not not the whole length, but just a little bit on the tails of your skis. And then if people come up on the tails of your skis, like you saw with Rosie and, and uh, Niskanen, you're going to get a nice little howdy duty with a tiny little bit of clister in your glide zone. And that is going to throw your whole race. So wow, that is, I've never heard of that happening. Never in my life. Um, but Arl Munson, 80s, 80s Norwegian. Maybe it's happened in that era. That I'm not if sure. I ever do a citizens classic race again uh, in Alaska, oh. I am absolutely doing that. That is going to be if you do that, if you do that, I'm going to fly to Alaska and break your kneecaps because that is <laughs> that is bad for me. All right, so Ollie Burris, we're going to come back to him from Craftsbury, Vermont, a co collegiate coach of mine, all around good dude. Um, he, in the context of development, I'm interested to learn more about Devin's coming up in skiing. You've mentioned running Devin and having to make a choice between pursuing skiing and running at a U.S. college versus just skiing in in Canada. What was it like coming out of the mean streets 
my editorial edition of Sudbury, Ontario, one of my least favorite places to drive through Ollie's edition in the 90s. How have you seen things change in Canada since you developed? How about comparing that to Norway in the white in the way your wife came up through the sport? Anything we can take away from how the Norwegians do it? Or is that far too culturally embedded to be replicated elsewhere? That's eight questions at once once, but you can. Yeah, there's a lot of questions. So I'm going to try. I'm going to try and unpack some of it. I, I can't guarantee I'll get to everything. So it was a difficult decision for me to pick cross-country skiing instead of running. Absolutely. I loved running. I still love running. And I competed at a fairly high level and had offers, multiple offers to many different American colleges in NCAA and broke my mom's heart. We went, my mom and I went and visited some of these colleges and man, they're some pretty sweet ones. And um, I turned those down and, and decided to go cross-country skiing. But at the same time, what really drove me to pick cross-country skiing, there wasn't a Jakob Ingebrigtsen as a, uh, as a uh, role model back then. Uh, I really believed that if I picked running, like maybe if, if everything aligned, perhaps I could make the Olympics and what, get knocked out in the heats in the 5,000, <laughs> you know, like, no, like not compete. Whereas like, I really believe that, I mean, I was stubborn and I believe that if I would have a chance. I mean, it's just a smaller sport. Let's just call it what it is. Um, but there's also a lot of variables in cross-country skiing. I, so I believe that like if I really believed in myself that I could on a day be the best skier in the world on a given day, whether that's the Olympics or, or World Champions or World Cup. And so that was one thing for the competitive side. The other that it satisfied that itch. But on the other side of the coin, like if you want to be a good runner, guess what? You have to run. And I do love running, but that's what you got to do to be good. And when you get injured, yeah, then you have to pool run and do some cross training and that sort of thing. Some strength training, everyone, every professional athlete has to do that no matter what sport. But cross-country skiing is this really unique sport in the sense that like, I love running. Guess what? There's no snow to ski on from May to November while we go to glaciers or New Zealand a little bit here and there, but by and large. So I can run a lot. I can cycle. I can roller ski. I can do strength training. Uh, some people do kayaking. There's a whole lot of other things you can do that truly are helping you be a better cross-country skier. So that variation was always something that really, really captivated me. I love many different sports and moving through different landscapes through all four seasons and, and cross-country skiing afforded that to me. So that was, that was a big draw. Um, the next question is how did it, how was it coming up in Sudbury? It's funny that you said it's the worst or like your least favorite place to drive through. I second that Sudbury is a, pile of hot garbage it's a piece of shit it's like one of the ugliest cities in all of north america no question thanks to nickel smelting it's the nickel capital of the world i'll have you know uh but a consequence of that has been um a lot of the sulfur dioxide involved in smelting of the nickel killed all the trees and it's just a sad state of affairs in in that city and i think it has like one of the highest rates of uh, incidents or rates of cancer and heart disease in all of Canada. So it, it doesn't have a whole lot going for it. That said, what it did have going for it when I was younger was a small, but very, I, I was very fortunate with the club um, that I was involved in, you know, skiing with, I grew up skiing with my parents. Uh, they love just cross country skiing, just like, you know, backpack and hot chocolate kind of thing. Uh, not, nothing to do with racing. My grandparents did that too. So it was just a family activity. I was hockey crazy. I've talked about that on the podcast a lot. I played 10 years of hockey and that was like my big dream. Um, but I always just cross-country ski because that was just something our family did. And then the club, Laurentian Nordic, the club that I was a part of, was never big, but had a lot of like my I was lucky. I got into this cohort of like like-minded kids 
And I was the youngest in that cohort and they were tough and I grew up fast and we had a coach that was like, I would never in a million years <laughs> recommend doing what I did as a junior for training because our coach, uh, the late Dave Battison, uh, didn't know anything about cross-country skiing really, to be perfectly honest, but he did know how to motivate young young athletes and he drove us hard. And I was, I think it was just serendipitous that the group of guys we had at the time when I was 15, 14, 15, 16, uh, we loved pushing each other and we loved beating up on each other and we loved talking shit. And it was just a really, really fun environment. And they really pushed me every single day and we enjoyed each other's company and some stopped training, of course, like all clubs happen. And uh, you just kind of move through, move through that cohort. And then the same kind of thing happened when I got into the national team. So I was the youngest with a, with a group of hard charging guys that like to really work hard and, and they inspired me to be better and yeah, talk shit and had a good time. And that continued to now. To now. So yeah, it's been quite a journey, but that was, uh, hopefully it got to some of the answers anyway. Yeah, no, that's good. Um, okay. So now uh, we're going to, we're going to come from uh, Quebec's Eastern townships. Uh, our friend Charles Breton uh, has a couple questions, but the one um, that I really liked is this is perhaps a newbie question, but I'll ask anyways. I follow pro cycling religiously. One thing that's always really exciting, especially in grand tours, is when the finish line is up a big climb. I'm wondering why almost all the races uh, on the World Cup circuit finish with a straight flat line, where in classic, for instance, that seems to reward double polling skills. They don't need to all be like Alps or Mies, which is a you know uh, the, the the end of the Tour de Ski up an alpine slope. But wouldn't having a pretty substantial hill right before the finish line mix things up a bit? And I don't mean like 500 meters before, but like 100 meters before. Is there any existing race that looks like this that I might have missed, or something close to this? Is this just the nature of stadiums that makes this difficult to achieve? This is an amazing question, by the way, and I love the perspective. I also follow road cycling religiously. And I have wondered the exact same thing because I think it would be so fascinating to put a finish line on one of the venues. This is a classic example that FIS should be listening to some of these suggestions and changing, changing how the World Cup is raced to create different storylines and see how people react when you have to, yeah, diagonal stride up, uh, think about that second last hill or the last climb in, in Val de Fiem during the Tour de Ski, the classic course, have the finish line up there. It's not, a, it's only a 20 second climb, but it's steep and it's tough. Um, these sorts of things. It would be an amazing idea. I or in, love or in Ruka to put the yeah, finish line at the top it's of the hill. Right at the top of the hill. Yeah, exactly. Like for one of the races. Yeah. It would just be a fascinating uh, thing to explore. It would be amazing to do it in a mass start. It wouldn't be as exciting an individual start, just like it wouldn't be exciting to have um, a time trial, like a rolly time trial in pro cycling, not an uphill time trial, but a rolling time trial finish with like a climb. It just kind of, although they did it at the Bergen World Championships um, in the time trial, so that I, I rest, uh, I'm sorry, I just contradicted myself. And that was very exciting because it had tons of fans on it. So I would love to see that as well. And Maybe not for every single World Cup, but I think you could definitely make this part of a, this is where legacies are made and this is where legends are made if you could have courses where you finish with a substantial climb. And I agree, Alpstermis is a sideshow. It's not a course. It's like, it's ridiculous in a lot of, in pretty much every way. 
Although I do love that the Trudisky after 18 years has continued to finish and now it's established. So a sideshow and as ridiculous it is, if they ever go away from that in the tour de ski, then I'm kind of over the tour de ski because it's already on like life support as far as I'm concerned, as far as what their original goal was for the event. But uh, yeah, great idea. I would love to see it happen. It does. I would, I would, I would absolutely love to see, let's say two start with two races fest where, where the, it finishes on an uphill and then we get to see different athletes or the same athletes have to have to speaking of the tactical mastery of a, of a Diggins or a, um, or a Klebo, let's see how they, let's see how they would solve this challenge when their kick that they're so well known for has to essentially be like dismantled and built differently to solve a different problem. It'd be awesome. Awesome idea. Love it. Maybe, maybe uniquely advantageous, for example, a Ben Ogden who has not necessarily shown like sure. a, a game winning double pull. So let's, we'll move on to a couple quick questions. Um, uh, from Rebecca, I understand that skiers can no longer work on their skis between the sprint rounds because of FIS's new floor carbon testing pro, uh, protocols. Do you think this has had any notice, noticeable impact on the races and can they switch skis between the qualifier and the heats as well? Uh, this is a great question. So you can switch ski. You, you cannot switch skis within the heats anymore. Back in my area, Meyer, I could switch skis like as many times as I want. I could switch skis. Every, my skis would be rewaxed before the semifinal and the finals of the World Cup. Uh, or I would just go on a totally different pair of skis for the quarterfinal as the final if it was warming up or the conditions were changing. The rules have changed, so now you cannot do that in the heats. And that, in a lot of ways, you would think that would have a huge impact. But like everything, what evens it out is the entire field is under the same protocol. And remember that in a sprint, only 30 move on. So the top 30 best skiers in the world all have pretty decent skis. So if anything, it actually kind of is an advantage to that 30th skier that doesn't have quite the deep ski park that uh, Jesse has or, or Klebo has. So it, it probably is making it a little quote unquote more fair. So I'm all for that. Um, and as far as the fluorocarbon things, like, you know, you and I had talked about this a lot, Nat, like I, I was expecting big, big differences between nations with, um, with skis, especially warmed up because of the no fluoro. And I haven't really seen it. Honestly, we've had some dirty, we've had some dirty snow. We've had some warm temperatures and I have not seen the changes, uh, not changes, sorry. I, I have not seen the discrepancies that I was expecting before the season started. So, so far, the no fluorocarbon thing and the not changing of the skis hasn't really translated into humongous differences. That said, we're going to Oberhof this weekend. And if there's one venue with horrendous snow conditions, dirty and big differences with skis, it's always Oberhof, so maybe we'll stand corrected after the weekend. We'll have to wait and see. All right, moving on to the next question from Maxime Harvey. Uh, going back to Holman Cole in the iconic uh, 50K venue in Oslo, this is ridiculous that Fist removed the event. I'm flabbergasted. If a petition or movement is starting to bring back the event or trying to bring back the event on the schedule, please let us know on the podcast. What can be done to show our disagreement in disappointment. P.S. Sorry for my English. I'm French Canadian. Um, Devin, we had, there we we've had a little discussion about this, and I don't know yeah, if you off air. To, uh... No, we have had a discussion off air. We've even we've even uh, well, you have really taken the bull by the horns on it, or like not bull by the horns because it's all just like empty talk right now. But behind the scenes, but we we've even discussed with like 
a New Yorker staff writer about this whole thing. Well, uh, so it's been kind of interesting. We're not totally sure what we want to do, but I am also, I, you know, we don't have time because you, you know, you got me on a tight leash here now, but like, I can't even begin to discuss my displeasure. It's not about displeasure. It's ineptitude. It's fucking ineptitude. When you pull the most, the only iconic race that we have right after we have had equal distances. Now we're trying to build this legend that is the female 50K. This is so outrageously ridiculous and I don't, I don't know where to begin. I mean, I don't know if there's anything we can do really because Fitz, yeah, but, but what I, (laughs) but what I will say, what I will say is the excuse that, that these weekends are locked in place is something that I would really appreciate Fitz to look at. Because if you're saying, if we have it so soon after the world championships, people won't do the 50 K at home and colon. How about we organize the schedule so the 50K at Omen Colon isn't the week after the 50K at the World Championships? God forbid, two weeks after. Like, 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 what are you doing? Why don't we, or how about this even? Maybe we start thinking about the World Cup finals are always in Oslo and always the 50K so that everyone can do it. Because what else, what are you saving it for? Like, there's pretty low-hanging fruit strategies to and- highlight the one crown jewel of the, the Kitzbühel of Alpine or the Monaco Grand Prix of F1. This is our crown jewel of our sport. And that this throws up their hands and been like, it's too hard. People aren't racing it. We're going to get rid of this. Like, we're just going to skip it for a year. What part of, of like selling a narrative don't you understand? The reason why Peru Bay is the hell of the North in cycling is the narrative it is a complete bitch the 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 cobblestones are horrendous the conditions are horrendous but legends are made from a race like that and that's why classics riders will do anything to win and the lead up to Bay, all the old races seeing museu seeing van pedergen seeing the the, the tom boone it's like seeing like throughout history eddie Merckx like doing the hell of the north you're creating a narrative and we can do that with home and colon and we have done the norwegian media has done a decent job with that but this has a crown jewel that they're just like flushing down the toilet it's it's like it's i don't know man i don't know yeah famila there you go like oh yeah our boy Torgotas, like the legend himself, wrote an entire, like, I don't know, 700-page tome. Coffee table book. It's right here. I'm brandishing it. Yeah, about the 50K. So So, so have we done anything about this? Let's just, we're not going to let the cat out of the bag as yet, but but there's some discussions about petitioning and that sort of thing. We're not totally sure if there's even a point doing it, but, um, you know, I'm glad that you wrote into us unprompted because this has been taking place off air. So stay tuned. We'll, We'll see where we get with that. But the long story short, I like I can't I can't even I can't even like no excuse no excuses ever to take the one World Cup that matters. Nobody care like I'm sorry I gotta keep ranting. Yeah 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 no nobody no. nobody gives a shit if you win the twenty k in Gomes. Nobody cares that that's that's nothing. 
That is like what okay, me. I've won some World Cups. Let's go through the World Cups I won. A sprint in Toblak. Who cares? Rybinsk, a 15K in Rybinsk, Russia. This is not iconic. Like these are not Slotska Pereba Poland. Like these aren't iconic. If you win Homan Colon, you're a legend. The same with Alpine, right? Meet the king. Yeah, no, the whole deal. The whole deal. If you win Holman Colon, you're a legend. And I could go on and on because I think Holman Colon is defanged. And the fact that Holman Colon is a mass start is not just a travesty. It's it's blasphemous. A crime. And, and yeah, and then we've shortened the course to like an 8.7 when there's great 16.7K loops. You could even bring back a 25K loop and you would have people camping around the whole thing. It's by far the most important and most iconic race. Give your head a shake this change your schedule there are no excuses you can't cancel it that's my take so i agree with you 100 if, if, if you're if you're motivated by devin stay tuned we will have more to say about this i think so coming from megan from mammoth lakes california i've heard a rumor in mammoth's nordic community about an adventurous roller skiing experience devin that you had with your teammates down wild roads the story goes that mid-tuck, someone asked about cattle guards at the bottom and you ended up jumping one of them. Can you share more details about that alleged experience and any other wild roller skiing stories you might have with the caveat that the clock is, is ticking here? Yeah, the clock is ticking. So we're going to have to maybe circle, circle the wagons back this a little later. But I do remember that roller ski. I remember a lot of, like, especially early, the reconnaissance uh, in Mammoth, especially because our high altitude venue early in my career was was park city that's where we kind of had that place cased out and then we we moved on to mammoth or not moved on we added also mammoth lakes and and that was part of like the first cohort of canadians that went down there and used that for altitude for cross-country skiing so some of these beautiful roads and like gorgeous loops we had no idea <laughs> we had like really no idea uh what we were in for you know we uh, we had great help um an ex national team skier nancy fiddler uh lives down there in mammoth so we had help from her and others um in the ski community to like give us some tips and let us know but this particular roller ski you're talking about i would love to take the thunder for myself and say like i like did a backflip over a cattle guard and jumped it but the person that truly did and it was one of the most amazing things i've ever said is the bulldog himself ivan babakov so that is that story is true, but the person that actually hopped the cattle guard was uh, Ivan Babakov at at yeah. speed, at at very very high speed. Um, I have hopped cattle guards before, but that particular story you're mentioning, there was one person that hopped the cattle guard, and that was Babs. The rest of us, like, had the we had like the car come ahead and then like start breaking, and we were like it was like chaos. But none of us fell, none of us did anything. But Babs is a little bit further ahead from us. And he actually saw the cattle guard in the last second and at like 50, 60K an hour hopped the cattle guard. It was great. And, and, I mean, in, in, in Russia, you know, cattle yeah. guards, you, you don't guard the cattle. It's it's fine. Oh, no, so I, I, and I will just quickly indulge in my own story about this because I'm not, I was not like um, an especially confident or competent, uh, you know, ski maestro where like I was like avoiding these epic, falls on one leg like skiing off the course into the woods and coming back on but there was one time where my, you know my parents 
um, you know, I went to college at Bowdoin. That's where I was like really training seriously for to the extent that you could call my training serious. But um, I would go home to like mid coast Maine, not an area where like anyone roller skis, but you know, I needed to roller ski. So there were a few times where I was like skiing on back roads and I made the mistake of going down a hill where I was pretty sure there was like nothing at the bottom, but as I'm like midway down the hill and accelerating, I saw railroad tracks. And let me tell you, that's not a good feeling. And I, you know, I was not, this was not like a, an Alpine, you know, descent, but I was going fast enough that I really didn't want to crash. And I got to the railroad tracks and I jumped and I made it all the way over the railroad tracks and just uh, kind of looked back and was like, I, probably could never do that again if I tried. And uh, so I just, you know, something was smiling down on me that day. And I don't yeah, know. It's, it's incredible. Like, like yeah, no, but there's so many, like I've started, like I, I have like, just to the, our listener in Mammoth Lakes, like I have hopped cattle guards. I've hopped cattle guards in Mammoth Lakes. Uh, just not that particular story. And, and the exact same experience where like you, you're going at least 50k an hour probably more like 60 plus k an hour and you have that split second it's like well my options are hit the ditch that is not appealing try and ride this out that's not appealing because if my roller ski stops and breaks i'm going to like destroy my face or i'm just going to like do a hail mary and try and time this perfectly and it has worked out i think a funny story for a listener about roller skiing so here in oslo uh, at the top of Oslo, well, the the iconic venue we've been talking about, Holmenkollen, is is kind of on the hill that overlooks Oslo, uh, and there's a paved road that goes all the way to the top, and then there's an alpine area called Trivon that's right, right at the top. So, it's uh, I don't know from from town. Let's say it's maybe like seven kilometers, eight kilometers. I'm not totally sure. Don't quote me exactly on the distance. Maybe it's six, but um from from the more flat terrain in Oslo up to the top of Trivon, and I when I was one of my first summers that I was training in Oslo, um, you know, I'd been dating Kristen for a very short time and I was over here visiting her. I was training with some of the Norwegians at Norwegian athletes. And, and one of the days I, I was training with organized to train with Martin Jonsrud Sundby and he grew up in Oslo and he's like, yeah, yeah, we'll go up and we'll do some like loops of the roller ski track and go up to Trivon. I'm like, yeah, yeah, cool. And then come down and do a set of them. Yeah, whatever, man. Like, I don't know anything about any roller ski in Oslo, never done it. Like, whatever. And I, I mean, I was pretty, I had some good roller ski prowess apropos like talking about jumping cattle guards. And I would, as a young kid, I was like a total hot dogger. Like I going down from the Nordic center in Camor down to town. I had, uh, I would jump it, do a 180 at speed when I was skiing behind beside someone. And then all of a sudden they'd be like staring face to face and I'm like tucking, going backwards. Yeah. Probably like 50 K. And I was like, did freak out like Chris Jeffries, who's the high performance director at um nordic canada now would be he was just like losing it's like what are you doing like you're gonna kill yourself like so i like i was a hot dogger but here in oslo i'm like in this urban environment with like switchbacks these like huge hill from trivon down to oslo and i'm with with like with roundabouts and like north americans don't know shit about roundabouts let's just call that what it is so we get to the top and i'm like how are we going to get down? Like, is someone going to pick us up? He laughed. He's like, someone going to pick us up? Like, hell's no. And we started rolling down and he was going like mock schnell. And I just have this, dis I have this distinct memory. Like some of these roundabouts, we were going in way too hot. 
while I was with him. Then he dropped me completely. Like I could, he dropped me so hard. I couldn't even see him. And he waited for me at the bottom. And then you're flying blind. Yeah. And then I'm flying, but I knew because we went up the same way. So I knew how to get back down, but we, he would go like one in particular roundabout. He went into the roundabout. It's a podcast. You can't see what I'm doing, but essentially like, like a, like a running back, just like, like, um, like uh marshawn lynch like just like straight arming dudes like like just like literally he would like he went into a roundabout at like 70 kilometers an hour with like urban right like there's traffic just like standing up straight arm to like the the cars like not today essentially it's like you are not coming and i'm just like this is the most insane roller ski i have ever done in my life what are you doing and then just to add insult to injury and i'm sorry to throw him under the bus but he wasn't even he wasn't wearing a helmet and I'm like, you're a psychopath. <laughs> you're going to die. <laughs> well, well, also, like, I mean, a couple things there. One comment and one question is, I mean, in I would imagine at some level, I mean, this is like Tom Brady riding a bike with no helmet and flipping off drivers in the U.S. Like Martin Jonsrud Sunby is like one of the best cross-country skiers of all time, Norway, if surely at the time. And so imagine being a driver and just like seeing like a football star, like cruise cut yeah. you off in a roundabout. Like, what do you even do? Do you throw the finger? Do you like, you know, do you wave uh, yeah. at them? Oh, and talk them he, he, like, just, just, yeah, he didn't, he wasn't swearing. He wasn't doing the finger, but like literally straight arming, <laughs> like a palm out, like, but, but then, are gonna come into me. I'm like, but then so that, that's my die. other question about that is in Norway, do roller skiers get more deference or are is it driver or drivers drivers like anywhere else? Well, here's here's the funny thing, right? Like, I, I would say in Gen in Lillehammer, for example, in smaller towns with a big ski community, absolutely they get more deference than in North America, no question, because they're more used to it. They're seeing roller skiers often, but let's never forget that Oslo is the capital city of a country, like over a million people, and not everyone in Oslo knows skiing, follows skiing, gives a shit about skiing. Sure, Holman Colin is a more iconic uh, neighborhood, let's say, of, of cross-country skiing. So, But in the summer, there's a lot of tourists. There's a lot of the, this, that, and the other. So I've had run-ins in, in, in Oslo before. My wife has, has been hit by a car in Oslo on roller skiing and fractured her pelvis, actually. It was like a very serious accident, yeah. So so this is like, it, it, it's uh, bad things happen. Bad things happen uh, with roller skis and cars, no matter where you are in the world. And Bad things have happened in Oslo, but on that day, ripping down from Trivon to down to the Ring Three in Oslo, Norway, my like first roller ski, or like one, not maybe not my very first, but one of my first roller skis ever in an urban environment. I was absolutely uh, shocked and also completely he completely undressed me down that descent <laughs> he was like probably waiting for me at the bottom for like five ten minutes like i was shitting myself on the way down because i tried to follow him at first that's hence me seeing him like straight arming through the roundabout and after that i'm like i am literally going to die <laughs> so like i was doing like taking like run out you know like a transport truck on like big descents like on the yeah 70 or whatever like you have like the run out lanes like i was like doing like run out lanes like on the like into people's driveways to like stop myself and like hyperventilate essentially i'm like okay well sunby's gone i'll just maybe away from me at the bottom maybe he won't but uh yeah anyway 
All right. Well, that that was some that was actually some top top quality storytelling. So we've got about ten minutes here to get through. Actually, we're you know we're getting pretty close. We've got five or six questions left. We may have oh, to leave. A few oh my on the god! I have to make, leave some on the cutting room floor. I think. Okay. We're going so to. so uh, Stephen Karincic asks. I've heard you and Devin comment on the improvements Jesse Diggins has made to her classic skiing technique. It seems odd that this was addressed rather late in her career, and I keep asking why this was not dealt with earlier. Do you think coaches had made attempts to improve her technique earlier in career earlier in her career? Is it common for a good skate skier to not address classic technique deficiencies? Is it the job of coaches to at- nudge their athletes to focus on weaknesses? Yeah, for sure. I mean, it, 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 is it the job of coaches? Like, of course, it's in their coach, it's in their job description, but really, like all responsibility lies with the athlete themselves. And what I will say with, especially with technique and especially like Jesse in particular, Jesse has always been working on her classic technique and she's a total pro. And of course she wants to be better and proficient in both techniques, but sometimes, you know what? Sometimes like something just clicks a really, really small thing with her timing or a really, really small thing with her angles, especially like her center of gravity when she's kicking. Cause that's what I'm seeing right now. It's like, she has like a really nice high hip position when she's kicking. And then if you were going to draw a line from her hips to, to where the kick zone is of her classic ski, like this is where the biggest changes happen, but this is such a subtle difference. It is so subtle. And she's probably been working on this for years and years and years. But guess what? It's like anything when you're trying to learn a new skill, learn a new language, learn anything new to a proficient level. Take take learning a language like for me, for Norwegian or whatever, like a couple of years ago, my Norwegian was okay, but my Norwegian is a lot better today than it was two years ago or three years ago. Because guess what? You use it. The more you use it, the more you think about it, the more you live it, the better you will be, especially if you're doing it with like deliberate practice, like Jesse's doing with her classic technique. So I think, I think this year is just a, most likely a um uh, a couple really really subtle changes clicked for her and we're seeing that prowess but absolutely coaches are you know have been riding her for years uh to get improvement on a classic skiing and, and she's also no one's harder than no one's harder on an athlete than the athlete themselves and uh i, I will continue to sing the praises if she's going to continue skiing classic like she's skiing today it, uh, this year it's it's nothing short of fantastic and out, outrageous really so that's not many athletes in the world in the history of skiing have been able to change their technique in such a short time uh from season to season i mentioned ben Descari, who is better in classic doing that with skating and that's really the only one i can compare jesse to all right we'll go with one more question here uh which i, I actually like uh I, i'm i'm gonna keep this question anonymous for reasons that the questioner probably can appreciate, but uh, there, this question is about the FIS games, which uh, the International Ski Federation is proposing for 28, basically like a non-world championships, world championships program for cross-country skiers in the non-world championships or Olympic year. Does anyone want this except for International Ski Federation stuffed suits? And will anyone... Like, will this take away from the tour to ski or will the tour to ski mean that no one actually gives a shit about these new fist games? What do we think? Well, first of all, just for listeners that don't understand how the world championships works in cross country skiing, we have a world championship every second year. So in a quadrennial, the Olympics happens every four years. So from one Olympics to the other, that's a quadrennial four years. 
And in those four years, you will have two world, the world championships happens every second year. So you'll have two world championships in that quadrennial and then one gap year. And that's what our listeners talking about. FIS has, uh, well, they're not just has, they're pushing through and this is going to happen. The FIS games would be Alpine, Nordic combined, jumping, cross-country skiing, snowboarding. Like it'd be all the FIS disciplines, free ski, all in one like championship format. Do we need this? No, of course not. <laughs> of course we don't need this. Like we have world championships and all these other disciplines. We have the Olympics. We have the World Cup. So do we need this? No. Is it going to cannibalize some marquee events? Absolutely. If the people that ran it gave a shit about marquee events, which cross country does not, but it will, it could cannibalize Alpine when there is marquee events like, you know, Beaver Creek or like, like, let's be honest, Kitzbühel, Vangen, those are the marquee events in the speed side of things, uh, even for, even for slalom for that matter. So yeah, it will cannibalize some of that. And is, why are we doing that? That's a good question. If they want this to succeed, there's one easy way to do it. If you double the prize money for the win or triple the prize money for the win, guess what? You'll get buy-in. You will. Or or double the points, double the World Cup points. They do that in Alpine. The World Cup final, you get double points for wins, that sort of thing. If you start trying to implement that, you're kind of forcing people's hand. And then will it will it uh, will it cannibalize the Tour de Ski? Absolutely. No question. But I think we need to really look at the tour de ski format. We talked about this Nat ad nauseum. 30 women are finishing. It's like what on a non-championship year, like on a, on a tour de ski. And we got some pushback because I know we're, we're leaving some of these questions out, but we had some pushback saying, it's like, you keep saying the tour de ski is a joke, but with equal distances, we have, uh, you know, the load, the kilometers for the women. This is like one of the tougher tour de skis in kilometers uh, compared to previous years. And that, that, that is true that, but it's also not just about the kilometers raced, but it's about how the event is showcased where you're racing and the story, again, it comes back to the narrative. I think we've lost the narrative in the tour de ski. And if you have the fist games, <laughs> yeah, of course, of course it's going to cannibalize the tour de ski, but fist doesn't seem to give a shit. So yeah all aboard the fist games train. So at least I hope they triple the prize money to make it worthwhile for all the athletes competing in this uh, made up championship that we don't need. Well, uh, I would say this has been a, a, a truly lively and engaging mailbag episode. I, I want to say there, I, I kind of curated these questions. We got through a lot of them. There were, there were, uh, we really appreciate like, I love how much people think about cross country skiing and like the the level of detail and and depth that goes into these like and there were just we've gotten a lot of really nice feedback as well. I wanted to particularly shout out like Kevin Hoos uh, who went to my college Bowden sent us like some really nice feedback. Just a couple of like more in depth questions that I felt like we'd kind of covered in past podcasts before couldn't really get to. There were other others like that. But um, yeah, I mean, keep your questions coming. We'll try to address them. You know, if we can address them as sort of one-offs or, or maybe in another episode later, we, no, or, or we, get, we can get guests too. We've done that in the past with these uh, mailbag episodes that having guests instead of just you and I smashing through them. So please, yep. we love the feedback. Keep giving us questions, concerns, critiques. And when we have some lively guests like Alex Harvey, when he comes on, he's always fun to throw some questions at and, and that sort of thing. So 
Um, yeah. we'll, we'll, we'll get to your questions in more haphazard way, but uh, this was fun, Nat. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Devin Kershaw Show. We'll be back soon.